to episode 34 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And on today's show, we have two very special guests with us, and um, I think Jason should introduce them. Yeah, today we have the founders of Central Desktop, um, Isaac Garcia and Arnof. Arnof, I can't even pronounce your. I don't even know if I pronounce your last name correctly. How do you pronounce it? It's Arnof Shu. Arnof Shu. Okay. Uh, so, and I've known Isaac and Arnof for I'm guessing almost five years now, and have watched, um, you know, I, uh, Central Desktop grow from just a tiny little idea to you know quite a successful startup. So I'm pretty excited to talk with them and hear their story. Things should be fun. Yeah, agreed. So, um, well, first off, why don't we uh, why don't we just kind of get you guys to talk a little about the how you guys got started? I mean, you know, we, oh, oh, and one thing I will say is Central Desktop is a web collaboration platform. Is that probably the simplest way to describe it? SaaS based web collaboration. Yes. Nice sassy web collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> you put the sassy in SaaS. Um, so, all right, so. You guys, and just to get the context of it, how many employees do you have now? Um, this is Isaac talking, by the way. Um, I, we are at, I believe, I believe it's 34 today. Um, a couple of contractors, so maybe it floats a little bit higher on certain days. Right, so pretty substantial size. I mean, you're getting beyond the startup stage to just sort of a, you know, a small business, I guess. Was that your vision from the word go, or was it something, something entirely different? Oh, no, no, no. Um, yeah, I mean, going back to the beginning when, uh, I guess when we first met Jason um, was back in 2005, and we had just started in May of 2005 is whenever we started the company. Um, Arnold and I had been partners already for two other businesses before this, um, and we were currently working at CNET at the time, CNET.com. We had sold our prior companies to those guys. And we kind of ducked out of there realizing we wanted to get out of that corporate environment and founded the business in May of 05. And I don't, I'm not sure exactly when it was, Jason, but it was shortly thereafter that you pinged us, just kind of reaching out to another, you know, fellow software company here in Pasadena. And yeah, yeah. The reason it started is that I think it was like October, November of 2005, and I was helping to organize the bar camp, the first bar camp LA, um, yeah, unconference, whatever. And we were, I was sitting with Kareem Maya and he and I were doing, I think, most of the work of figuring out who, who we could get to come. And we were just trying to come up with, you know, what startups are even in L.A. And I remember somehow stumbling across your site and, and noticing that you guys were in Pasadena. And the reason it stuck with me is because I was working on a very similar concept at the time. Um, and I had, I had switched directions and we could talk about that later. So I was like, holy crap, not only do I have competitors, I have competitors like, you know, 500 yards away. So (laughs) when we were organizing the conference, I was very curious to, uh, to meet you guys and see what you were up to. I mean, at the time I remember thinking, I should just go down the street and knock on the door and say, Hey guys, what's up? I'm working on the same thing. But, uh, I never, I never did that. But Jason, look where you are now and look where Isaac and Arnoff are. Yeah, exactly. So I clearly made the right decision. To, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was one of my better decisions. Yeah, the reason I changed directions is that when I was working on I was just a couple months in, maybe a few months in, on it. And at the time, I was called, my idea was called Office G2 because I had that domain name. And uh, I remember Microsoft announced that they were coming out with a web-based version of SharePoint. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm only a couple months into this, and what did we learn from the 90s? Do not compete with Microsoft. They will crush you. 
And so I kind of said, eh, I said, you know, maybe I should work on something that's a little, little more, a little different. It's not going to be so mainstream because if Microsoft comes in, they're just going to dominate the space. Um, but obviously, you guys decided to keep going. But before we get into that, what gave you guys the idea? Um, when we were at CNET, I was in the enterprise sales group, and um, I, I managed the West Coast. And one of the deals that we did was with Microsoft, and it was called the Windows Marketplace Campaign. And whenever you go into your start menu and you would go find all the compatible software and compatible hardware with your Windows machine, there's a whole marketplace behind that. And that's what we were powering, that we were licensing data to these guys. And part of it involved, you know, it was like nine countries around the world that were launching at the same time. There were PR people from Microsoft. There were advertisers. There were consultants. There were employees. There were CNET employees, CNET contractors, et cetera. And we had tons of documents going back and forth, lots of task lists, project timelines, et cetera. And I'd fly up to Redmond on a really regular basis, once or twice a week. We'd sit around a conference room, kind of hash through the details, negotiate the contracts. And after each meeting, we would email all the information to each other. Um, everybody was saying, hey, just send me an email. Uh, I'll pick it up when I go to the airport since I'm not on the Microsoft Wi-Fi. I'm not a client. And we would do this over and over again, project timelines, contracts, et cetera. And then we kind of took it one step further, and we made it even better we said, hey, let's pass around a USB stick and let's just pass around these contracts and these timelines and projects, et cetera. And it was really ridiculous. I mean, here we had 50, 60, 70 people around the world all collaborating on this round one idea um, that rolled directly to Bill Gates. Every two weeks, there was a report that went to him. He was very interested in this. At the time, it was the largest advertising campaign sort of dollar push that I'd ever put behind something. It was like $120 million or something. Right. And we were managing it all via email in this ridiculous capacity. And I asked them, I looked at them all, and I said, why aren't we using something like SharePoint to manage all this, you know, in a workspace, kind of manage a project? And they all looked at me, and they laughed at me. And they <laughs> said, come on, we don't have the resources to do that. And at that point, it's kind of the, everything sort of clicked. Just to realize, if Microsoft that has infinite cash that makes pretty damn good collaboration software. SharePoint's a good good tool if you have all the resources in the world to do it. Uh, if they couldn't do it, then how in the world does a smaller or medium-sized business can be able to do something like that? And that really is what we wanted to do, is provide easy workspace collaboration tools for teams, really kind of revolve around the team collaboration world. And with that sort of driving force of, well, if Microsoft, Microsoft can't get it right, let's go create something that we can do ourselves. And Arnold and I had already really hammered down that we wanted to do something that was SaaS-based, that was sort of in the spirit of what Salesforce.com was doing at the time, but we wanted to do that for a collaboration space. So that's the short yeah, story. I mean, I'll, I'll, Arnold, just, Arnold can I'll, jump just in. Add, I'll just add to that. I mean, I guess, I guess a little bit. Number one, in general, you know, the industry and people were getting more used to, you know, putting files and, and loading documents and data and so forth on SaaS applications or platforms. So that was becoming sort of the a preferred delivery vehicle, especially in the SMB market, where, quite frankly, you know, price trumps any of the other issues that might, people might have with SaaS. And so right. and we were also itching to sort of, you know, do something in general, and, and we had vetted sort of different ideas and, and so forth. Um, but we felt, you know, at that time, um, we also saw sort of kind of, you know, wikis had been around for, you know, I don't know, 10 plus years or something like that, but they always kind of locked in the IT um, department and things like that, and wanted to kind of take some of that and make it more palatable for the mainstream. And so, 
you know, we kind of came up with sort of this wiki collaboration platform and, and layered on top of that some you know, structured content like discussions and sort of file folders and some lightweight um, project management tools and things like that and just kind of built, built up from there. So how, how long did you guys work on this before you released version zero? I mean, we always talk about release early, release often. And, uh, you know, I remember, I don't know if you were telling me how you were sort of embarrassed by your first version. I, I was, and um, you know, I think um, I think the fact that that we did get it out there, um, you know, relatively quickly, and um, you know, when I say relatively quickly, I'd say it's probably nine months from um, the time you know I, I started writing, uh, you know, a, a line of code one. Um, probably about nine months till we got something out there. Um, we we started monetizing it pretty shortly thereafter, so I'd say about two to three months after we uh, uh, sort of you know got it out of. Uh, uh, got it out of kind of private beta mode or what have you. Um, we started um, charging for it, and we learned a lot from our customers. And you know, if you looked at the app, I'd say six months post-launch, it looked very different than than on on day one of launch. And we learned a lot from customers. I think releasing early is a huge. Um, I think you ought to be embarrassed to some extent um, with what you release. Right. Um, and uh, so you know, I, I think we're. I think that was that was a good decision. So when you said you worked nine months on it before releasing it, so you worked on it nine months and then went to a private beta for a couple of months and started charging. Was was that first nine months like part time or was that nine months of full time work? Um, probably more than full time work. Okay, so it wasn't like you were doing this. Um, you know, probably and nine, I mean, 70, 80 hours a week kind of kind of work. So you worked your butt off, and now did you did you know what you wanted to build? Are you guys messing around and change direction that period, or was this nine months? pretty focused on on what the product became when you released it i don't think we set out with um a full-blown spec to begin with we certainly didn't have any you know sort of 20 page document that kind of described um, what we wanted to do um and kind of started building modules um you know anything from uh you know login module to okay so where do you go next and and so you go into this sort of wiki area and you know, probably has some tabs and it, it needs to have sort of some basic task functionality. And you started kind of building from there. It took a pretty agile approach. That that sounds like um, that sounds like emergent emergent design. So rather than sort of mock it up, you you literally build it and then have iterations and and create the product as you go along. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, Isaac and I would talk on a regular basis, and we would look at you know what we had built and designed and so forth, and. Uh, uh, would just iterate against that on on a pretty frequent basis. Um, and I, I, re- uh, I remember the, I mean, the first really rough, you know, uh, pre version point oh 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 one. I mean, really, it was just a kind of a crude wiki that we wrote based in PHP, right? It was just really, right. really basic and fundamental. You, you know, you had gone through quite a bit of research early on from an infrastructure perspective. Of you knew you didn't want to go the MySQL route. You wanted something. Um, a little bit more robust at the time, and you knew that you wanted certain front-end scripting languages. And we, you know, we early on there were some frameworks of a wiki, and then it's like, now what? What are you going to build on top of the wiki? And how do you make this not feel so much like a wiki? Right. That I mean, that was very early on because we kept saying, "Damn, this still looks like a wiki." <laughs> Did you have you found have you found that the visual appearance of it and and the sort of the tactile feel of it is very important? Um, yeah, it's, it's really important. You know, I I think when you're, when you're doing, um, SAS web applications, the interface is the application. Um, 
obviously some other things matter like performance and, 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 and some of the backend infrastructure and things like that. But from a user perspective, interface is everything. And, um, you know, I would say that we've, you know, I think we had a sort of, you know, reasonable interface um, uh, probably six months after launch and really haven't changed it a whole heck of a lot since then. Um, but last week, we actually just released Central Desktop 2.0, and that was um, a huge reskin um, and uh, just really, you know, you know complete sort of. Uh, 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 change in terms of you know the user interface and so we, how how we looked at it. We've added a ton of features over the past four years. Um, we've really sort of just kind of stuck these features into the white spaces that was available. Is two point is, is slick? Is is it much slicker than one And then my question after that is, does the one version, the fact that it wasn't as slick, you've still managed to to build it to profitability. So where along the scale do you, you know, how professional does your product have to look? How good does it have to so, look? So yes, yes to both, right? So yes to both. So 1.0 was, was very functional. Um, you know, certainly you, you, you know, some people call it utilitarian and what have you, um, very functional. Um, you know, we, we, we managed to, to get customers and, and get, you know, thousands and thousands of paying customers and they continue to pay us. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, we were seeing some attrition from, uh, either trials um, that, that came in that, that didn't convert as a result of you know, maybe not having sort of the most modern um, interface, not as you know Web 2.0 or, or what have you, as other people would uh, would call it. Um, and so um, I think we can get a better conversion rate and we have some lift on some existing customers and so forth as a result of, of CD 2.0. Um, Isaac probably has some thoughts on that. Well, I, I was looking back at some of the stats. I just pulled it up here real quick and we officially launched like the the working product September of 2005. Right. And I'm looking at it, we made $173 that first month from three customers. <laughs> and then right. the next month we made a 897 from five customers and then just sort of, you know, snowballed and built from there. Of course we were losing some customers along the way, but version 1 was good enough to make money and that was part of it. If if if, if nobody was going to pay for it, then we knew we didn't have anything. Um, and at the time, we were very distinctly against a freemium model of giving away and then figure out how to monetize it later. I mean, that was, you know, we, we thought about some advertising models, but realized, you know, hey, I'm in a business. I don't want any, you know, porn ads or whatever uh, appearing or showing up accidentally when I'm trying to, I don't know, close a deal with Microsoft or something. Right? Yeah. So the... Well, the, the thing about the thing about a freemium model and in any sort of economic model that's based on impressions and things of that nature, you need to get a ridiculous amount of traffic in order to monetize that in some sort of meaningful way, right? Yeah. And the only other thing that I would that I would urge, um, you know, other startups or, or just sort of learn from from this experience is that when we started out, we did not have a free plan. Um, we started; it was a thirty day trial. $25, $49, $99 a month, and so on. Um, I think four or five months into it, we actually added a free plan to our pricing matrix. And our trials doubled the following day. Yeah. And right. continued to do so by simply doing that. So basically, do have a free plan is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. Even if it's just it marketing. Will help with your signups. If it, it will help with your signups. Because I think what it is is that you know, uh, people sign up for things, and even if they lock it, um, they might recognize, hey, yeah, I can still use this, 
and not necessarily have to pay for it, but I'm, I'm putting a time investment into something um, that uh, if, if you know, I, I don't feel I have the funds for it or, or whatever, um, I, I can still use it. And so I think well, there's, there's sort of that value there. Well, how do you, how do you partition um, your free versus paid? I mean, that's obviously a big deal because if you, if you, a lot of web apps seem to give too much away, in which case they, they're overwhelmed. Their infrastructure is overwhelmed with their free uh, users versus their paid users. I mean, how, how did you figure that out? And what, what works best from your perspective? Um, I don't think there's a necessarily a right answer to this one. Um, we, you know, we have three different lever, levers that really push our, our pricing plans. So we have number of users and then we have workspaces and then we have storage. Those are really the kind of the three levers that kind of push, um, you know, which, which plan is sort of most suitable for you. And, um, you look at obviously sort of what's going on in the industry and, and, you know, maybe a cost per user or something to that effect. Um, and then you, and then you price something that, that sort of makes sense. And I think it's different for, for every business, um, depending on sort of what the drivers are, you know, for us, a free plan is, um, I think it's, uh, two workspaces, five members and then 25 megabytes of storage. So it's pretty low. Um, I mean, our cost of good on, on a, you know, is, is, is incredibly low. We have incredibly high gross margins. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not really an issue from a cost perspective. It doesn't cost very much to service, you know, very low usage use. What, what percentage of your users are free? Or do you have any, do you even keep statistics like that? Yeah. Well, we have a total of about close to 400,000 total users. About 120,000 of those are associated with a paid account. So okay. the balance would be a free user. But uh, I'll also qualify that those are pretty low use free. Although I'm always surprised when something happens and they're like, oh, I've been using this for a year and a half. And I'm thinking, really? With two workspaces, five people, and 25 megabytes of storage. I mean, the, the funny thing here is that that number, two workspaces, five members, and 25 megabytes of storage, hasn't changed since September 1, 2005. Or whatever we launched the free version to begin with. So is it the right one? I don't know. We really didn't do a lot of experimenting with that. The whole point was just trying to get people in to try it. It's just enough to get them to try it, get a taste, maybe invite a couple of people to get a little viral feel from it. And then then at that point, it was automated marketing to try to get them to convert over. The The other thing that I would add to that pricing matrix that Arnold said that we added a free version up front. Because at first we said – you know, this isn't free. There's no way we're going to do a free version. Well, we gave a free version. There's some marketing spin on what the definition of free is. But the other thing that we did is that we had a grid that said free, 25, 50, 100 bucks a month, 500, 1,000, 1,500 bucks a month. And we kicked it down and we got rid of those $1,000 a month sort of things, the high users. We thought, well, we want people to know that they can scale into this um, for their whole business or mid-sized business, whatever. But what we didn't realize until we kicked it down was that it was scaring people off. They're thinking, you're going to you know, get me in here and then you're going to upsell me to something that's $2,000. I'm not even interested in that. So we removed it and I think we kicked it down like $250 was the limit that we based it on. What could I put on a credit card if I'm inside a business that I'm not going to think about or I don't have to get IP, IT approval? And two fifty felt about right. I think we even had a four ninety nine, but nobody ever bought it or something. So how does that work? So when you say that's your highest, so but it's also based on the number of users. So if is it just is it that the rates so that if there are more users beyond a certain point, they're still paying at that same rate, that two hundred fifty dollar a month rate, but it's just scaled. For- no, that, at that point, if you want more, you would come in. You would call our call center, Isaac Garcia, 
and I would answer the phone um, and we just figure something out. And it, it was kind of, that was the price elasticity of saying, well, how many users, what's the storage, what do you really need? You know, look, we weren't going to turn away a cell. Look, if somebody had called in back then and said, I can't afford 25 bucks, back then it was like, what can you afford? Right. You know, because it, 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 part of it was we wanted any revenue, but also we were trying to find what are those limits, right? What, what is the limit of what we actually look for? Is it 25, 15, 10? What's the threshold we're looking for? Can I, can I just say something here, Jason? Um, just a couple of things. Firstly, um, Jason and myself didn't comment after you said you had 400,000 users, 120,000 associated with paying account. Well, that's just absolutely phenomenally fantastic. And in the, in the time that you've done it and just the way that you've done it, that's really fantastic. But also, as you were going through that, that sentence there, you mentioned something that you just very briefly mentioned, automated marketing to get them to convert. And I'm really interested in hearing more about that, what that means and how that works. Um, I'll start and then I'll let Arnold kind of follow in because um, I, there's two things that drove that. One was there was only two people in this business. Neither of us were getting paid. You know, our first month was $173. We weren't even splitting that. Um, both of our wives were kind of putting us through this, right? <laughs> um, at the time, it was like, okay, if we're going to have lots of users, and of course we anticipated, you know, hundreds of thousands of users immediately, <laughs> uh, they, you know, we couldn't afford to hire people to answer the phone. So the only one really dealing with the phone stuff was me and, and Arnold. He would use, he would answer customer and support calls all the time. And we, so we knew it had to be automated. That was number one. Number two, Arnolf, as an engineer, is just thinking scale from a code perspective all the time, one to many, right? One to many, one to many, one to many. And of course, I'm thinking that from business, but he's thinking from a code perspective. Right. So you bring them together, you're like, well, automated marketing drips. What are all of the things that we can do to promote inside the app and when they're coming into the app and then the emails that they receive that will automatically move them from this free version to a paid version, any paid version? And the first thing we did was just restrict it to that's free. You have you have more flexibility within the first 30 days than you do after 30 days. So you can do more things during the first 30 days. And then after 30 days, if you don't convert to a paying plan, well, we're going to kick you down to a lower plan or to a, a minimal use sort of plan. And that sort of set a timeline automatically that someone had 30 days to do a full evaluation and 30 days to get um, to make a decision you know, for business. And something as simple as that um, was able to compress and allow us to start running analytics against what are they doing during 30 days? What's the average buying time, et cetera? Um, and we were, you could control that. I don't, know, I don't know if you want to add anything there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So create, um, create a sense of urgency for your customers. Create a sense of urgency for your customers. That's, that's, that's a really key component. And um, you know, pepper them consistently with value. Um, we, we do uh, uh, 30-day email drips, right? So when you initially come into the trial, it's sort of like a 30-day kind of training course. Um, so you get, you get emails on a regular basis um, as you go through the trial. And, you know, inside the application, there's upsell messages. There's, um, you know, we do help center, user forums, things like that. Basically, we tried to do as much as humanly possible um, by not driving people back then, mind you, not driving people to the phones right. and just either self-help or some other form of sort of automated help. <clears throat> videos, we did a ton of stuff with videos. A lot of videos. So one, I mean, videos is an amazing way to obviously get, you know, one-to-many one kind of communication going on. 
um, every single feature when you initially went to the feature area. So you went to the task tab, you went to the you know media tab, you went to the databases tab, whatever. Um, there's a video there that says, you know, do you want to watch the overview video? Click here um, to, to play. And, you know, if you look at the video stats, I mean, it was you know, every week, there's thousands and thousands of videos being played. Those are thousands and thousands and thousands of conversations that we didn't need to have right. because we simply didn't have the staff to support it. So those are, you know, just those are pretty basic. I mean, that's, that's pretty standard kind of stuff, but don't make it an afterthought. Sort of think about it when you're initially building the product. It will really help you as you actually grow a customer base. Mm. The, um, I want to take one step back, if you don't mind, in time when, because I think a lot of our listeners are at that stage where they're, they're just about to launch or they just launch, and there's that first, that early stage of sort of despair where you release it and then nobody cares, or you release <laughs> it and you got a few customers and then it kind of stalls out or the, whatever it is, and I, I, I think for people to see sort of hear firsthand the experience you had through that period and kind of what you were thinking and, and uh, everything. Because, you know, you, so you, you're working on this thing for nine months, and then you go into some sort of private beta, right? How, who, who, how many people were in your private beta? How did you get them in there? Um, uh, we had a, like a sign-up. Like yeah, well, we, we, <laughs> excuse me. Who, who was... I mean, but there's certainly folks, certainly folks that that you that you know, right? So either be it your friends or people in the industry or whatever that you know, certainly you would invite them in. The other thing that that we did at the time, and I, I don't even know if this is a uh, just something people do anymore, but we had, uh, you know, we, we certainly had a splash page. Um, we tried to do some promotion around it initially, and uh, you could type in your email address um, uh, if you wanted to participate in the beta. And so I don't know if we made we got like uh, you know 100 users or something like that. Um, we started doling out sort of the invitations um, and just started getting some feedback. Um, you know, when you launch and, and nobody cares, that part, you know, it, that's okay. But to me, that's perfectly fine. I'm less concerned about necessarily what, you know, if, if you get great coverage with TechCrunch and, and some of these other media outlets or whatever, I mean, that's good. I mean, obviously get it if you can get it. But if you can't get it, that's okay. Um, you could go, you know, down the sort of more grassroots uh, road, um, or you can also, you know, you can also buy, um, you can buy traffic, right? So Google Ads makes it obviously pretty affordable to buy traffic, um, assuming some of those keywords aren't too heavily impacted and things like that. And just listen to your customers. Listen to what they have to say. Talk to your customers. If you talk to your customers, especially maybe some of the initial ones, um, to give some feedback about what works, what problems are they really trying to solve? Don't just build a cool feature or function or something just because it's cool. The bigger the problem, the bigger the pain, the more they will pay you to solve the problem. Um, I can't say enough about that because that's really, really true. So that, that's the problem. They will pay you for it. I'll totally reiterate that. Um, Arno, if you're totally right. I mean, in early days and even still, but back then, especially spent a tremendous amount of time on the phone, even for a no touch, don't call us kind of business. Um, people would call in with support or whatever. Cause back then, I mean, I could spend an hour or two with someone on the phone or Arnold would as well. And we were so interested. What are you trying to solve? What are you doing? What are the tools you use right now? What's wrong with the ones that you have right now? What else are you looking at? And just having long, drawn out, deep conversations about it. And, you know, writing it, document it, and him and I sharing it on a really, really regular basis. You know, pretty high bandwidth relationship we had, Arnold and I, um, sharing all that information. Weighed very heavily into it. Um, to speak to your question about sort of the discouragement, uh, Jason, it's very real. I mean, 
we we didn't i mean i think we back then we did have we did have and still do have i think ridiculous expectations i think that's part of the beauty of being an entrepreneur it's that unbridled optimism that you are able to have in spite of you know everything against you but even back then um you know, i remember thinking man we should be way further along than we are um you know a couple of months into it or a few weeks into it fill in the blank it's okay, you were you were like that you were like that four years into it every time we'd go to lunch you'd be like <laughs> oh man we should be and i'm like dude you got like 10 people working at. We, 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 we still are jason we still yeah are. Exactly. i mean i don't even believe it's like it's like that friend you have in high school or college and he and he goes and claims he's going to fail the test and or if afterwards he's like oh, totally failed it and he gets back and he gets an a and after about the third time you're like i don't even listen to you anymore you're totally <laughs> ridiculous it's like i don't listen to you guys oh you know we really should be here but you know, really, what that is obviously is that you have high expectations. You know, you don't rest on your on your laurels, right? You're always pushing. And I think, I think I remember reading some kind of entertaining blog post recently. It was talking about you know what's a loser? Losers are people who rest on their laurels, and that's absolutely the opposite of what you guys are. You are never satisfied with what the business is doing. It always should be better, be pushed forward. You were never happy with the interface. You weren't happy with your growth rate. You were always pushing and i think that's probably one of the key things to take away from your guys success is just the relentlessness of 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 the pursuit right we we're at the stage of our company now that we actually have things like you know mission vision values things like that because you know with more employees you sort of got to do those things um and our number one value and the one that everyone says the most and it's the first one on the list is relentless execution that's our that's the number one value in our company and my wife had asked me and other people asked me, you know, what is it, you know, what is it that makes you different than everyone? I said, well, nothing's different about who I am, but whenever there's a code release or a code push and it's the one thirty, two o'clock in the morning and we still have to push it out there and some customers are already bitching about it and I got to record a video. Um, Arnold just pushed it up there and says, okay, here's the new code. Let's, let's do a new video for this. And you push it out there. And you crack open a beer and you kind of smile for a second. Like, all right, I got it up there. I pushed it out there. Whew, that was a good day. Now get up again at 6 o'clock in the morning, pick up the phone and answer all those emails that are coming in and start over again. And it's literally every day. You don't take two days off. You don't take three days and bask in your glory. Because if you did, there's going to be 100 emails of customers that were waiting for you to come back. And what were you doing? And that relentless drive Man, I got to tell you, Arnold and I have it. If there's a quality that we have, it's you get up again and you do it twice as hard the next day. And I think it drives right. some of our employees crazy. <laughs> See, the one, well, I think I want to say the one, the one quality that Justin and I have is just pure awesomeness. And that's a whole other. <laughs> that's a whole other discussion, right? Well, the fact, uh, okay. J- Jason, can I can I just say one thing? Yeah. Um, I think it's funny listening to this conversation because one of the things that you and I have in common is we want to build a business so that we don't have to do anything anymore. <laughs> but it sounds like these guys actually just, you know, totally love being in the business every day. They don't want to build a business that creates a residual income. Like they just well, no, want to be. That's, that's, I think that's you. That's not necessarily me. I, okay. I'm not, I don't want to do anything. That's the Justin model. <laughs> I, I just want to, I just want to work on what I want. I want to build something that's cool and just make it great and just have fun doing it, you know? Um, but you know, I think I'm gonna. I just want to throw in the sports analogy, which kind of reminds me what you what you guys are doing, which is like sometimes you're playing like a, a soccer game, right? I, you guys know I play soccer or whatever. And uh, we, I remember the very first time 
I, I started, uh, I think the first time, first game that I played with my new team, I started 10 years ago. And we're playing this really awesome team. And they score a goal on, on us pretty easily within 10 minutes. And the first thing, one of their, their captains starts screaming, all right, zero, 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 zero. I'm like, well, they're up one nothing. And they score again. And then he starts yelling, all right, it's zero, zero. Like, we're not even going to pretend. We're going to pretend we didn't even score any goals. Right? <laughs> and we're getting beaten down. And I'm just like, come on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think we don't lose nothing. But because they never gave up, they never relaxed and said, oh, yeah, these guys, these guys suck. We're just going to like, you know, run all over them and start joking around. They stayed focused on kicking our ass the whole game. <laughs> that's what great. That's what sort of winners do. They just keep pushing. They don't they don't take a step back and start just being lazy. They keep pushing. And I think when you see in any, any aspect of life, the, the, the people who succeed is because they don't they don't start you know, believe in their own PR. They, they know ultimately success comes out of hard work and commitment. Totally. And, uh, yeah. I think that's totally. what you guys are doing. Oh, well, and here's a, here's something I wanted to, too. I, I thought this would be a really good question. A good uh, topic is that, you know, a lot of times we, we, you hear about the issue of the, uh, of blue ocean strategy, red ocean strategy. Like you, you kind of want to go in some area where there's nobody else and you can kind of carve out your niche and you don't have a direct, you know, uh, competition with too many other people, you don't want to be a commodity. But if my if memory serves correct, when you guys came out, you, there were like eight or 10 direct competitors that were web collaboration platforms, right? I mean, you were not the only one in the space by a margin. No, that right? A, yeah, and there's probably a hundred of them since, and I think another one launched yesterday, and there's probably one that launched today as well. I mean, <laughs> it, there's just a ton of them. And I, and I look at them and I smile, and I love the drive again and the unbridled optimism, but it's, I know how long it takes, you know, five years later, I know where we're at today and it's just, it takes a tremendous amount of time to build it. It always takes longer. An entrepreneur asks me, what's your number one advice? It takes 10 times longer than you think it does to do anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so, 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 the, so the, the initial competitors, when you first started out, you're a couple months in, you're looking around I mean, you're not getting discouraged. You're not thinking, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. There's so many other competitors. You should just like, screw it, just ignore them, and we're just going to build the best solution that we can for the space, for the problem that we understand, and go from there and just kind of ignore them. Is that, is that your attitude, or what were you thinking about your competitors at the time? Quite frankly, we don't think that much about competitors. <laughs> um, we, you know, we're aware of them. Um, you know, we, we, to some extent, follow what they're doing through RSS feeds and you know, things like that, just like anybody would. But we don't follow them that closely. We don't really care so much if you know XYZ competitor has you know ABC feature, and we really need to have that just because they have it. If it delivers value, if this is something our customers are asking for, we will build it. But the competitive component rarely hits sort of you know our, our prioritization formula with regard to feature set. It's just not something that we think about all that much. It's really more about, are we delivering value to the customer? Don't worry so much about your competitors because at the end of the day, this is an execution game, right? This is not a, some sort of sprint that, that goes for two months or whatever. I mean, this is, this is a long-term marathon. And just don't be so concerned about them. And, and now, if you're you know, on the flip side of that, you know, if you're building an eBay or Facebook or something like that, well, they can only be a couple of those guys because they're a marketplace and it, it, it takes, you know, buyers and sellers or, you know, it, it, it takes a, a, a sort of mass populace to, 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 to get them moving. So that's, that's a slightly different story. But with regard to like a web app or, you know, business app or something like that online, care less about your competitors. 
Yeah. I, I would only add to that that we knew we did know that the market was big and broad and wide and fragmented and that we could exist, we could be number 10 or 20 or 30, hoping to be number four or three or two, but you could be way down in the list and still have a big viable business. At the very least, build a few million dollar business at the time is what we were thinking. So, Right. So it's just like when you're in school and the teacher's like, don't worry what Sally's doing. You just worry what Isaac's doing. Right? Totally. Don't, well, look, don't get distracted. You just focus on your own business. Well, but ironically, I mean, if you say that, whether that's Sally or fill-in-the-blank competitor, at least right. in our space, we're generally all doing the same thing. Right. File management, projects, tasks, wikis. Come on. Is there anything new in there or innovative that that sounds? It's the execution of how you do it and whether you do it longer, faster, and better than the next person. Okay. So what is the what is the execution? I mean, what are you executing on better? I mean, if it's all the same, what do you, when you, you execute better, what do you do better? Well, it's talking to their customers from what I can hear. That has a lot to do with it. Well, that definitely. I mean, one of our other competitive advantages in general is, and this is something we talk about pretty frequently, is, you know, we, we have a lot of competitors that are sort of features rather than full apps, I would say. And, and you know, generally we're very focused on completeness. Um, and so that's a sort of a whole bunch of things that work very seamlessly together rather than just sort of one component. Um, and that, that's, I think, a, a big part of the value is that, you know, a single login gets you sort of access to sort of this suite of tools and applications that work relatively seamlessly together. But has that never overwhelmed your user base? Like, because quite, quite often people, when faced with something that's very complicated, that does too much, they kind of shy, yeah, so shy away from it. That's exactly the challenge. It's, 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 it's the challenge of having sort of, you know, a lot of features and going and, and going, going deep without overwhelming the user initially and not letting them grow out of the application that easily. That is the challenge. And that's a big part of the user interface and user experience is, is to mitigate that, that, those issues. And how have you done that? What's been the, the sort of primary strategy? You know, when you initially come into the application, um, you know, we do things like wizards, right? So, and we also do a lot of templating and things like that. So we ask you sort of questions like, okay, what is it that you want to do? You want to start a project? Okay. Um, are you trying to create a user forum? Okay. And we kind of set that environment up for them. So we kind of pre-configure these templates right. um, for users. And you're going to see a lot more of that sort of stuff um, this year and beyond as well with regard to some, some vertical templates and things like that. Um, so, so we ask you some kind of general questions and we kind of build that environment to pre-build it for you. And then if you want to reconfigure it later, you can certainly do that. You have all the tools available to you and so on and so forth. And if you're an advanced user, you, know, you can check and, and check box and things like that, um, the, the things that you, that you want to set up. Um, but we have a lot of templates and a lot of wizards. And I mean, that, that's a big part of sort of the formula that kind of makes it work. So is that kind of like the way that Microsoft went down this route of rather than having all the menus expanded, they just collapse and only throw sheet three. They only sorry. They only show three options, and then you can kind of expand the options, and it takes note of the options you use and just kind of shows you what you need. But yet, there's a lot behind. There's a lot under the hood, but you only get to see the three options. Yeah, it's a very similar concept. It's a very similar concept. Yeah. Excellent. I mean, it's we have we we do have a lot of horsepower under the engine about what Central Desktop is, and it as we've already said, it is a challenge. But that's also, I mean, in spite of I'm actually going to say it, Arnold, in, in spite of not having the prettiest interface, in spite of not having the <laughs> biggest brand, 
in spite of not having millions of users and in spite of us being still here in LA and we've only been tech crunched once. And it was whenever we announced our, our funding because they always announce that kind of stuff. And they that still was much late. That was much later in your life. That was three years into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, in spite of that, people bought our product and I venture to think and venture to say that we're further along than most of them from a revenue perspective. And I, and, and, I don't know why. We had a pretty ugly interface, relatively speaking. It was utilitarian, practical, flat, text-driven. Um, and I think that was part of our success. But it was a lot there. A lot of How many features. of your customers knew that you were on the end of the line available to talk to them and, and sort of talking them to, through stuff? Is part of this word of mouth and brand loyalty just because you guys have been so, I don't know, um, fanatical <laughs> about being available? And is that yeah, part I of think- it? Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, they knew that they could call us directly um, virtually at any time. I mean, right now, if you were going to the user forum, Arnold and I are plastered all over that thing. And some of the people realize that they're like, wow, you know, five years into it, I'm still using the app. And the CEO and the CTO are still, you know, in the forum answering questions. We didn't farm it out to, you know, another country or anything. This is, this is direct response from us. And I, and I actually do think that makes a tremendous difference. I think it does. I think that builds real customer loyalty and it, and it also makes the whole word of mouth thing, you know, because people are going to say, look, I'm getting this amazing service from this company and, and that's what they're going to tell their friends. Yeah. And well, it's, it's direct. Yeah, exactly. So when you were, when you were just starting out and you got going and you started getting some customers, how did you grow your, I don't know, brand or brand awareness? I mean, how did you get going that first year? You didn't have a lot of money to put into buying, say, AdWords. You didn't, you couldn't really advertise. Um, you guys aren't connected or funded by a big VC firm to help you, I don't know, get connections or anything like that. You, I mean, in other words, you didn't have much of a profile. How did, how did it grow? Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll start on off. I mean, if I look back at the stats, this is so long ago, I don't think it matters. We've, we launched in September, um, Oh five by May of Oh six, we expect to be way further along, but by May of Oh six, we were doing about 10 grand a month in recurring revenue. Um, between right before that, I mean, the first dollars we had, we said, let's, let's go hire some PR. And we hired a freelance PR person out of San Francisco. Um, I think we were paying her three, four or five grand a month, something like that. And it was our, it was by far our biggest expenditure. We had never spent that much on anything, hardware, nothing. Um, and that was to build analyst awareness and to start getting on that train knowing that it's going to take a few years to get this thing off the ground. And how did you feel the return on that investment worked for you? Invaluable. Really? <laughs> Invaluable. It's so... you, you, hear, you hear a lot that people, I've heard a number of times where companies have spent money on PR firms and that it was a huge waste of money and they just abandoned it. But in your case, you're saying it worked. I guess if you get the right PR person, it can work for you. Well, P- PR, is a, PR is a weird animal. Sometimes you can spend, you know, uh, $10,000 and get $50,000 worth of value. And other times you can spend $10,000 and get probably $2 worth of value. It's just, it just sort of really depends. Um, at that time, I think to some extent still today, um, you know, th- there was a lot of uh, uh, stuff in the press sort of about collaboration and web 2.0 and um, sort of, you know, social technology, especially in the consumer space, but also how that sort of translates into business. And that, you know, that's still being talked about today. It kind of rode that wave to some extent, so mm-hmm. that's certainly helpful. Um, the other thing you got to remember is, you know, PR people—they're not magicians, right? They can't just manufacture stuff. Um, some can, but most can't. Um, so if there's 
interesting stuff out there that you can attach yourself to, certainly do so. And that will certainly just kind of help um, uh, in, in, in general. Um, I, I don't think we can fully quantify the value of um, how much uh, you know we, we got out of PR from a dollar perspective, but I can say it, you know, sort of uh, the rising tide flow, uh, you know, rises all boats um, kind of thing. Um, okay. And it certainly helped both from a um, also from a paid ad perspective, right? So as you get your name out there, as you get more recognition and so forth, um, it, it will help be it through you know Google click throughs or be it through you know banner buys or affiliate programs or whatever it, things that you do to market yourself. Yeah, so, um, so it, for us, uh, PR is important. Yeah. So I just want to so I'll just follow up with one more uh, uh, specifically one more thing, which is that okay, so you email a bunch of friends and family, whatever. You have a hundred people beta test for a couple months. You come out, you have free paying customers the first month, right? You have five the next month or something, and you get to ten thousand a year. Now that almost seems like a magic trick, right? I mean, because uh, we've been talking about ten thousand a month. Ten thousand a month a year later, <laughs> right? That's what I mean. Ten thousand dollars a month a year later. So that that in itself almost seems like a magic trip. So mm. it's like you know we're making three hundred dollars a month, and then a miracle happens, we're making ten thousand. So and that was no, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, how, it's, I was going to say, how did it, it happen? It's it's incremental every month, and I mean that's the other beauty of SaaS, right? It's recurring revenue. So the customer that you land today is going to pay you. Hopefully, is going to pay you the same amount of money subsequent months to come. And so it just kind of builds on itself. Um, if you really understand your metrics very well, you can understand things like lifetime value, um, how your churn impacts your revenue. And, you know, Bessemer has some, some really good stats um, on, on sort of how to run a SaaS business. And I think those are very important stats to look through as you actually, you know, get into a sort of real viable um, kind of business. Um, but it's it's an incremental approach. I mean, I would say it certainly was probably linear to some extent between you know totally. the, sort of the hundred dollars and the ten thousand dollars, right? It's it's not something that sort of you don't go from hundred dollars to ten thousand dollars to a hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars within four months. It just doesn't happen. Um, it, it was it was a pretty linearly. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Maybe Isaac does, but uh, uh, it, it was pretty linear. I I, I got to say that. Totally what did you do? What did you do to get? The, did you was it uh, market? Was it just I don't know, emailing bloggers? Was it just was it just word of mouth? I mean, how did you get that traffic? Or how did you get PR? Well, they didn't get the PR then for until after they were making more money, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, good point. Um, I guess some of it was Google Ads <clears throat> that we were buying and Yahoo Ads, some other banners and stuff like that. And then, actually, I remember. Um, I think we'd done it by then. I think Arnold, that's when I started writing all those articles that we kept um, kept getting on Slashdot, right? Yeah, uh, those were actually really good. Those those we, were really good wins. Yeah. I, I wrote up a couple of link bait controversial articles about why email was bad, um, why email was good, and all this kind of stuff, and teed it up and sort of said the right things and wrote the right things and at the right time and teed it up to Slashdot. And they picked up like three or four of our articles, um, blog posts that I had written. And that drove tremendous traffic to the site that ended up, you know, did those people convert and buy the product? No, but I think we got word of mouth on that. That really grew and built things quite a bit. And that was free. And that was just me writing, you know, an email submission to Commander Taco. Um, do, you use at a, Slashdot. do you use affiliate marketing? And, and if so, how important has it been for your business? We do. Um, we didn't do that, though, for probably two years into it, I don't think. Um, and we, we do something with Commission Junction, 
And we also have our own in-house affiliate program. It's kind of a refer a friend. And right now, we're actually looking at revamping it. It's actually very generous. We pay a residual for the lifetime of the, of the referral, right. 10% of that. And it's pretty good, but I think there's a lot of nurturing. I'm not sure if affiliate marketing is the strongest way to build a B2B software um, business. I think right. it's more consumer or prosumer productivity sort of tools. Um, I mean, it does generate money. I don't know probably 10 or 20 grand a month, but I don't know to what extent, um, how much better it could be for our business. My, my personal opinion is that affiliate marketing is something you do um, when you've saturated all your other channels. Um, I don't think, in my opinion, um, at least in, in, in our sort of line of business, you can, you can get any more, if you can generate 10%, roughly 10% of your leads through affiliate marketing, um, that would be credible success, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you're going to get any more than that. So I, it's just something that I wouldn't focus on a lot because if you want to build the infrastructure right for sort of affiliate marketing, there's all kinds of stuff you need to do. Rather, you know, instead go build a feature or something that people actually care about. So I'm, I'm listening to you guys talk, and I'm, I'm trying to translate it to the business that I'm building, TweetMiner. And I think the one big difference is my price points start at $10 a month and then I've got one for $20 a month, which sounds like a much lower revenue figure. So where, where you guys do things like buy AdWords, I don't think I can kind of afford to do something like that. I think the landscapes change as well, though. I mean, uh, AdWords right. are more expensive now than they were five years ago across right. the board. Google has yeah. totally, um, they completely own this thing. And by the way, that was another slash out article as I kind of slammed Google on something and they got picked up a lot of places. That, that, that kind of stuff works. Pick a fight with a, a giant. Um, <laughs> works every once in a while. Um, okay. But it, I, I think you're right. And price points have a lot to do with it, right? That comes back to what Arnold was saying about lifetime value, customer acquisition cost. Those metrics, we actually look at them very closely, particularly back then when we were just looking at a self-service business. And the pricing started at $25 a month deliberately because we said... I'm not willing to pick up the phone for someone who isn't willing to pay me at least $25 a month. Hmm. And, it, and it was because it would be, it's too expensive. So if you're doing zero support, okay, 10 or 20 bucks a month might be worth it. It depends on how you support it, right? So a, a lot of that went into, we knew that someone paying you $10 a month might complain just as much as someone paying you $1,000 a month. And it's not worth keeping that person around. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of wondering with my business whether I've just got the price points completely wrong and would I basically have exactly the same conversion if I charged two or three times the amount? <laughs> and like, depends on the, it depends on the value, right? If you're solving a problem at a pain point from the very beginning, we would ask that question. Would you pay X um, if we did Y? Whenever someone would say, I wish you had a task list that did this a certain way. You're like, really? Would you pay $1,000 up front for that and we'll include it in the next roadmap release? And when you get that, you kind of get a better feel for what people are willing to pay for, right? right? And I think in your case, I would probably, I don't know enough about your business, but I would probably argue that, yeah, you'd have fewer customers, higher conversion rate, and probably the same or more cash. Yeah, you hear that a lot. I, there was an interesting interview, I think, with uh, Kevin Hale of Wufu, and he was, he wouldn't give the numbers exactly, but he said the vast majority, I should, I should say, he implied that the majority of their revenue came from their highest paying uh, plans. I uh, would. I would not be surprised at all if that was the case. I would. Um. Yeah. I would not be surprised whatsoever. 
So in some um, ways, it might not be a bad idea to sort of keep your price points a little higher. If you want to bring them down later, create lower plans later. But especially if you're limited in, in the ability that you could do customer support, it's like, well, I'd rather support, you know, 25, you know, high paying customers than 500 people who are not paying as much because it's, you know, the other great, the great thing about SaaS is that, you know, your collateral is online, it's on the website and so forth. You can do price testing pretty easily. Totally. For 30 days, lower your prices. Increase your prices for 30 days. Well, I could, I could literally <laughs> increase my prices. You're saying, yeah, is that a question? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. Sorry, I've, I just, I've got this habit of asking questions. You speak English or what are you? Going on? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just like, I'm kind of stunned. I'm kind of stunned. Like, can I actually increase my prices? Is that really true? Um, sure. So, well, I will say that we haven't though. Um, <laughs> what we've done is, if we did raise prices or change something, everyone who was already a paying customer, we left them at that same price and right. said, "You're grandfathered into the new cause or whatever." But we would add new features at a higher level, and if they wanted those new features, they had to upgrade to a new plan. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so we, we did a lot of feature function kind of stuff, but but the, the other thing I will say too, though, is so when you're doing sort of this. This, this credit card based, you know, expensable model, right? So we started out very kind of, you know, from the ground up. So we're not going in at the CXO level trying to sell, you know, $100,000 Oracle solution or a million dollar Oracle solution or whatever. Um, it, this is something that you expense, you put on your expense report, um, something you can pay for on your credit card. So there's a, there's a limit to how much people will put on their card or how much people will expense. And I think the limit is somewhere around $250. So it had to be below 250 um, and for us to sort of make it worth our while, as kind of Isaac said, it, it felt like it had to be sort of, you know, $25 and above. So we kind of came up with it with a few different price points between those ranges and it was 25, 49.99, um, 149 and $250, I believe it was. Points also give a sense of value. You know, they make the product seem more valuable rather than charging 10 bucks a month. When people pay for stuff, they, they end up using it more because they attribute more value to it. Right. I don't know how many free magazines I get at my house for all kinds of stuff. For whatever reason, I end up valuing the ones that I actually pay for more, not because they have more quality content. They probably don't, but it's just a mental, psychological thing. Yeah. So, Arnold, one thing that uh, Justin and I have been talking about is is the stick to So as an engineer, as a developer, I mean, there's, there's, there's this... There's this thing where you're going to get bored working on something after a while, you know, whether it's three months or a year, whatever. You want to work on new, cooler challenge, a whole new product. And um, Justin has <laughs> sort of wrestled with that because he's like, yeah, you know, you get, you know, I'm working on Tweetwire for three or four or five months. Now I want to, you know, do some other cooler thing. And obviously that's not, no way to grow a business. You have to stick to it. Now, as Isaac, as someone who's on the doing more of the business side, it's you're, it's more obvious from your standpoint, like, hey, this is a long journey, and we're going to grow this sucker. Now, Arnold, from your perspective, you're a business owner, so yeah, you want to grow. But for the, from the engineer part of your brain, uh, were there times where you're just like, ah, I'm sick of this. I just want to do something totally new. I mean, how did you keep yourself interested and excited and pushing on this thing for years? Or did um, you? Or was that even an issue? It's not really an issue for me, but I don't know if I'm unique in in, in that way or not. Um, I'm very much a business person as well, and I'm very interested in you know, the metrics of the business and how the business is growing and, and the profitability and the, and, and the, you know, the, the, the economic units of the business and so forth. So those interest me a lot. So, and the, the thing that I, I would say probably keeps me going the most is that you as a, either, you know, head of product or head of engineering or whatever, 
you can influence the conversion rates by either making a better interface, by making a better feature, by adding a feature, um, by doing those kind of things. Those are the kind of things that sales and in, in general, you know, BD folks and so forth have very difficult time doing other than sort of convincing the customer to buy something, right? But because we're not sitting on the phone, we're not selling to them, we are nowadays, but we weren't back then, um, it was really the product that was doing all the sales for you. So as an engineer, you can influence that by making a better product and by building a new feature or by making it you know, more attractive or by making it faster or you know, things of that nature. Um, so it's never been a problem for me. I've never lost interest. I still don't. I, I, I think I can have I, interest here. I'll, t- I'll jump in and say that I think for a lot of engineers, friends or other entrepreneurs that I know and kind of comparison of how uh, Arnold has done it, is that from day one, when Arnold and I sit in a room and we're talking about the product, we're not talking about the product, we're talking about the business. From day one, we're building a business and the product happens to be the mechanism of how we build the business. And it's not that the product isn't, isn't important, but it's that every decision in the product is about building the business. And that is the underlying way that we prioritize the roadmap, that Arnold prioritizes the roadmap. He does that more than I do. Um, determining sort of new features and new functionality, which markets to go into, things to do. It's all about the business. And I think I lucked out to have Arnold as a biz partner. He's, I think, in spite of being a master engineer, um, kind of a meta coder. He is, I think, a business, business business person first, and he definitely looks at it that way. Hmm. Right. So I think I think it sounds to be like one of the keys here for you guys is it's all about focusing on what's important. So, like you said, you know, you focus on the business, and if you focus on the business, you'll get the product right. And the way you focus on the business, to the way you get the product right, is you focus on the customers. You don't focus on competitors. Right. And you focus and to build the business, you focus on customers. You focus on paying customers and what they will pay for. So it's just really about focusing on those key issues, it's not focusing on the competitors doing. It's not focusing on what's hot this month on, on uh, Hacker News or uh, TechCrunch or who's getting funded or what VCs are talking about. None of that stuff's important. It's all just sort of noise that distracts you. Um, or you just need to focus on solving pain points for your customers, figuring out how much they're going to pay for the things that are going to solve those problems and just doing it, right? Relentlessly. That pretty much sum oh, it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great um, summary. Great summary, Jason. Can you put that in code? Yeah, well, you know what? I've been watching you guys for the last five years, pissed off at myself that I didn't follow the same path. <laughs> could you, do, can I ask you something else? Um, could you have done this, and this is for both Isaac and Arnoff, you can answer separately. Could you have done this without the other one? So if you were just on your own, could you have built this business? I think incredibly, incredibly hard. I think it's very hard to do. I, I always actually... I'm always impressed when I see single founder companies because I, it seems really hard to me. You have nobody to bounce stuff off of. Nobody else really cares. You, you know, when you build a business, you're sort of, it, it, you get up days and down days and all this sort of stuff. And when you have somebody else, it's, it's you know, they, they're sharing with that same pain and, and you can talk through things and, and that really helps. And when you're sort of just by yourself, I think that's really difficult. So I, I would, I wouldn't want to try it on my own. Yeah, I think your success for or your um, potential for success is lower if you go at it alone, um, whether you're an engineer or, or quote unquote a business person. Um, I'm I, I'm a really 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 bad coder, um, but I know just enough to be able to keep up with at least what Arnold is doing at a at a base level. Um, but I had actually I had I answered the same question this morning to a friend of mine. I went to lunch. He's a CEO of another company, and he's by himself. 
And he said, you know, are you and Arnolf, um, you know, is he kind of a peer that you can really bounce ideas off? And I, I kind of felt like it was a stupid question. It was like, well, yeah, I mean, we're business partners, co-founders in this business together. And, and I started, Arnold, if you don't know this, I started dissecting our relationship, right? And it's like, well, we're not really touchy-feely guys that whine at each other about how hard it is. We really kind of go at each other when it comes to if we know we're having a difficult time um, or if we're having a specific problem to get through, we bounce the ideas off of each other about how to get through it. Because you can solve certain issues through business or you solve certain business issues through product. And it's this relentless focus on just driving the business forward. Personally, I think um, my advice to any and all entrepreneurs is get a co-founder um, without question. Because I think you're making it twice as hard on yourself if you don't. Really you have to have a huge amount of trust. I mean, trust is so incredibly important. <laughs> if you don't have that, don't even try. But you know, don't that being said... Try. That being said, Arnold and I weren't friends before we were business partners. Um, I met him at Comdex. We like ran into each other and kind of a confluence of events that brought it together. It's not like we were, you know, roommates or girlfriends or anything like that before we were business partners. And, um, it's kind of an odd, <laughs> I, don't, I, I really can't explain it. It was very serendipitous, actually. That's but interesting. You, but, you, but, you, but in talking, you discovered that you shared a, a similar view on what you wanted to do business-wise. You said, all right, this is somebody I can work with. And, and he, you said you did two other small businesses before, before Central Desktop, right? Yeah. And, you know, you, you're in a lot of trust when you split money. So we did split money in the prior gigs, and I think that had a lot to do with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> hmm. It's interesting. And we're great friends, right? So, I mean, I, and, I and, Yeah, not to, to say we're not friends. <laughs> Not to say we're not friends. That's right. <laughs> I mean, because one of the big one of the big problems there is is you know how do you meet this other person? And I don't think that anyone's created uh, an easy way. I mean, that's a, that's a problem that needs to be solved. You know, there's there's a few attempts at it uh, through forums and different types of websites, but I don't know just how do you find that person? How do you I think Justin is about we, getting we out certainly against. don't have. Yeah, we certainly don't have the right answer for it. I, I don't know if Isaac, you want to share the other well, I, story. One thing I would say is it's just about getting out in the world, right? I mean, the whole the anytime you partner up with someone, it's usually because you know that you've met them somewhere out in the world, right? I mean, uh, by when I co-organized that first bar camp, that's how I met you, um, Isaac, right? And yeah. the reason that I met uh, Justin is because I you know, was a call in on these on this tech this weekend startups and he called me up and said, Hey, let's grab a bite to eat and I'm just down the road and whatever, right? So you actually get out of your office or your house and you go and you meet and you talk with people, right? So it's like sometimes these dumb conferences seem like a waste of time and money or, you know, these these meetups or whatever. You're like, ah, you know, why, why do I want to go and, and, and drive across town? But I think especially if you're trying to, I don't know, get out in the world and get stuff done, it really requires partnering up and teaming up with other people. And the only reason you're really going to be able to build that trust and familiarity is if you actually spend time with them face-to-face and not just emailing them or talking on the phone. Yeah, but it's it's hard. It's I mean, obviously that's better. Um, but I mean, Arnold and I in our first two um, companies, we, we did have a third founder at one point that unfortunately I get to say I was the one that brought that person to the table. And I just didn't, you know, the judgment wasn't there. And we had spent a lot of time together in business, et cetera. And it didn't work out. And that third person isn't part of our triumphant, you know. Um, and who was this? Was this with, this was with Central Desktop or one of your prior businesses? Prior business. It was at one of our prior companies before. Oh, okay. Um, one, okay. one of the companies we sold to CNET, yeah. Okay. And, and it's just one of those things that, I, I don't know, we thought things were cool and it just didn't work out. He was more of a business guy. 
um, than a coder or anything like that. But I don't know. I, so I, I don't think there's a formula. I think it's meeting lots of people and you take a, you take a risk, you take a chance. Um, I think Arnold and I respect each other because we both know we're both smart. So we both have strengths in other areas that balance each other out. I'm a better salesman than, than uh, Arnold is. Arnold's a better coder than I am. And I think when you marry those two things together, you can build a business. This is going to sound funny, but I can't actually imagine Jason <laughs> having a partner. He's just so um, particular and specific to the way he does things and his whole, <laughs> his whole concept. So that's kind of interesting. Jason, could you envision yourself with a business partner? Well, of course. I, you know, my very first business um, I did with a friend of mine from college, Phil Amman, who, who we, we had our first company together for five years. And, um, you know, I think, you know, we had fun. We were we remained friends afterwards. And, you know, I think he'd probably say that I was particular in things. He's just calling binary. I loved it or I hated it. Or as soon as I say, as soon as I decided I wasn't crazy, about, I, I didn't like it as much. I immediately hated it. You know, right. it's like God, you love this last week. Now you hate it. You know. So he knew. I, I mean, obviously, you know, being sort of, a, I, I guess, I'm a perfectionist, and because and being a perfectionist can make you sort of a pain in the ass to other people because you're spending a lot of time obsessing about something that they're not thinking is that much of a big deal, but it's just driving you insane, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, yeah, I guess you have to be with somebody who's kind of laid back about certain things, you know, or I would have to be with somebody who's laid back about certain things if I have very, if I feel very strongly about them. So Phil, who, um, you know, he's super smart guy and really, you know, he's great communicator. He's great at sales. He was great at writing code. He was really fun to hang out with. And I think to a certain degree, he just was like, yeah, whatever, Jason's, you know, <laughs> he hates it this week. So, and he just, just kind of laid back about it, but we got along great. And I think um, that was an issue. And I'm working in this, you know, my secret project that we keep talking about. I mean, I'm working, I have a, uh, a friend of mine I'm working with who's in Norway, who I, who's the guy I, I sort of built Prezo with. And like Phil, Guyon is very, sharp guy, really bright, great coder and all that, but he's just also kind of laid back, right? <laughs> so if I get really set on something, he's just like, I think he's just kind of like, whatever, that's fine. <laughs> so it's just finding someone with a balance. Yeah, you know, if you're a pain in the ass like me, you got to find someone who's... But you know, but what's interesting though, Jason, is I, I mean, I wouldn't classify you as a common or typical coder. I mean, you're a, you're, you're a, you're an excellent JavaScript coder particularly, but you're also kind of a, a jock who loves to play soccer You've got mm -hmm. three kids, and um, you can communicate with anybody, and you're great at speaking with people. I mean, yeah. those are extremely rare confluence of traits in one person. <laughs> yeah, that's very right. true. Yeah, that's well, right. thanks for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I will. I appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, in terms, of, it's, it's interesting what you talk. Can about I make you the, blush. Yeah, dude, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody listening is going bullshit. <laughs> but um, you know, you know, it's kind of interesting listening to you guys because when I when I looked at how you, your dynamic, which is that you're you're both totally committed, and in what Arnoff is is reengineering some piece of the product or building something, Isaac, you're like, okay, you know, I gotta I gotta manage this PR stuff. I gotta use customer support. I gotta Q and A some of this new product stuff. I gotta go talk to the account. You know, you're doing all this other stuff, right? So it's not just two tech guys teamed up. I mean, yeah, you can understand the tech. You're a smart guy, so you can get into it. But yeah, but I'm not an engineer, no. Yeah, yeah. So you can take all this other stuff and deal with it. 
And I think that's one thing it's, that's important to note as well is you get two tech guys together, which is one of the, one of the struggles that happened when, when Phil and I were working on our, on our very first company called uh, – it was called Renaissance Research Group. <laughs> this is back in the mid-90s. And um, the problem is we, neither of us really wanted to do the legal stuff or the tech support or the, the accounting or the marketing or anything, right? And, the only, and the, once, the only reason that we were able to get it really kick-started and going is I brought my girlfriend on at the time who, who has since become my wife, and she did all that, right? She did everything. Accounting, graphic design, customer support, you know, setting up the trade show, you know, ordering us to go get real suits, setting up uh, appointments with us, you know, and on, you know, all around, you know, in in New York and San Francisco and London, buying the plane tickets. I mean, she did everything, right? Right. So, so you're saying I'm you're saying I'm like your wife? What? That's right. You're <laughs> <laughs> you're like Arnold's wife. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you're his. Uh, number one wife. Uh, so, um, but no, but what it was is that um, you have to have somebody, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe you can spend the first months, you know, in the early stages of the company building the product and talking to some of the customers on the phone or email. But once it gets going and really transforming into a business, you really got to figure out how you're going to get that stuff done. And my first company, Phil and I just didn't get it done, really. I mean, we've kind of yeah. struggled with it. And my wife would, you know, I'd come home and she's just like, listen, you guys can pay me when I was making my old job. I'll come in and take care of this for you. And it made all the difference because then we turned into a business. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I just see you guys both had that from the start. So you never had to wrestle with, you know, gee, no one has paid any of the bills in three months. <laughs> I, I, would, I would also say that Arnold is surprisingly involved in the business side of things. And he's not completely removed from it um, because he'll, he'll be able to solve, I don't know, a, you know, a recurring billing issue much faster through code than it would be through me or hiring somebody to call, you know, 400 customers or whatever at the time that was um, to collect something, right? Well, it was an automated email with a button that automatically, you know, collects payment via credit card or whatever, right? Yeah. And one thing I want to do, one thing I want to mention, point out too, is if anybody who meets Arnoff, you would think that he was maybe a CEO or, or the, you wouldn't see he was a tech guy because Arnoff is obviously very conversant and the business aspect of things. So I don't mean to say, oh, Arnold can't do that stuff. It's just that you guys agree you can't. All right, today, you know, go take care of this other stuff and I can worry about writing stuff. That's right. That's absolutely right. You know, it's not that someone can't do it. It's just that you have to agree. And the problem is sometimes you have two tech guys. You know, we we found every reason in the world not to go do a a, a sales presentation, right? We got to add this new feature. We would rationalize that we had to rewrite some code rather than flying to San Francisco for two days or three days of sales presentations. But when my wife, uh, Sandy, you know, joined the company, she's just like, okay, two weeks from now, you're flying to San Francisco. I got nine appointments for you. Get ready. <laughs> They're still right. avoiding, right? I mean, we're just, you know, forced us into being a business. And uh, that's the only problem we need a couple tech guys um, together. And, of course, if you get a couple business guys, you might be in trouble, too, because you're like, okay, who the hell is going to build this damn thing? You that's know? right. So, totally. Now, the complementary feature sets is very, very important um, from, from a founder perspective. So make sure you don't just completely overlap each other. Right. So I got a, I got a couple other uh, little topics I'd like to bring up before we, you know, close this thing out. Uh, the one thing is, I remember one of your some of the bigger competitors at the time were like um, one of them was Social Text, right? They were sort of this, you know, business wiki thing. And mm -hmm. I remember at the time you were shaking your head because they were going in and like rather than staying a sort of as a SaaS company where, you know, you, you know, you, you, the data, actual data and everything resides on the central desktop servers. They started going in and creating like appliances and doing custom work for, 
for clients and, and doing that. And you were shaking your head at the time like, I think that's a bad idea. I mean, what do you think about that now? Because a bunch of companies will sometimes get sucked into doing that and doing all this custom work and becoming sort of a consulting, a de facto consulting company. It's not scalable. And, yeah, it's not scalable. But that, that's an easy thing to get sucked into, right? Because it's early revenue, right? You're, you're, you need money, right? You need yeah, money back. I, I, I used to have something on my whiteboard behind me that always said, avoid the enterprise allure. And that was, you know, every day or every week, somebody would say, hey, I'll pay, uh, you know, 50 grand to put this on a server behind the firewall and... You know, and that was very appealing. Only when we were making you know five thousand a month, that sounded really good. But we just knew that wouldn't work. I mean, we were relentlessly committed to the multi-tenant SaaS delivery model, knowing that that we wanted to do what Salesforce.com has done for the CRM industry. We wanted to do it for the collaboration market. You know, we're far from that right now, but it was all focused about SaaS, SaaS, multi-tenant, 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 scale, scale, scale. And that continues to drive us. I mean, Arnold, I'm sure you got way more to say than I do on that. <laughs> if you have different delivery mechanisms for your product, and it, look, it, this works for some people. It, I don't think it would work for us, but you turn into a very different company. You have different kind of support. You have different development. So as you maybe, if you want to distribute your product um, as, as a download or something like that, and you want to support you know, different database backends and so forth, um, you're going to have to wrestle with all the nuances between you know, Oracle or MySQL or Postgres or whatever or SQL Server that you're going to run this thing on. Um, if you're going to distribute as a VM, you're going to have to figure out how you're going to run updates um, against your software and how you're going to get behind people's firewalls and, and things of that nature. You just turn into a very different business, and your code base also gets incredibly fragmented because people are running different versions and all this sort of stuff. It works for some people. I'm not saying don't do it if, it, if, if you're in the right business or whatever. For us, it was, it's not the right decision to make, and we're still incredibly committed to SaaS. Um, I don't see in the, in the mid or long term that we're going to deliver something that's non-SaaS-based. As a SaaS business, um, how many people does it take to support 400,000 customers? Well, um, you know, surprisingly, we have one. Um, we, have a, we, have, we have Alan Bryan is our director of IT. He's really the only person that is entirely responsible for the stack, the uptime of the stack. He's an incredibly brilliant guy um, and you know, does work a lot, but um, it, it really just sort of takes one guy. Um, now, granted, he's, he probably needs some more resources and so forth, but everybody else from, it, from the engineering side or technology side is, you know, is, is a programmer, right? Is writing code for the application not maintaining the OS or not maintaining the DB or not, ma not maintaining the hardware. And we own and operate our own stack. Um, of course, we have a colo facility. We have two colo facilities, one in LA and one in Colorado, but we own and operate both stacks. That's actually really interesting. Um, I mean, that's, <laughs> that, isn't, that isn't what I was asking, but that's really interesting to know that it's one person who supports the stack. But when I say support, I'm talking about support staff to deal with customers. Oh, sorry. Um, so we have um, three people in customer support that basically, and that would, that would be called technical support. So they maintain um, inbound um, uh, you know, help, help tickets, things of that nature. They also maintain all the help collateral. So helpcenter.centraldesktop.com is all our help articles. They're the ones doing the videos and so on and so forth. Um, and then we have two people in client services. Um, and we expect to actually ramp both of those departments a little bit further this year. Um, but we have two people in client services that are sort of responsible for our, you know, quote unquote, kind of, you know, enterprise customers, the ones that are paying us more 
Um, the ones where we have um, service level agreements with and things like that, um, they have more of a kind of one-on-one relationship with those with those customers. So in in aggregate, it's it's five people sort of in support slash client services. So you have one for every ninety thousand customers. <laughs> Actually, the, the math you want to look use, at it that way, yes. <laughs> Actually, the math that we use is uh, one client service rep. Well, no, what, what's the math we use in support, Arnold? It's all this is all math. So it's, it's one, it's it's one support, one technical support person for every one thousand paying customers, right? So a paying right. customer is an organization that has 25 or 50 seats or 100 seats or something like that. So that's how you got to get to your 100,000 number, right? So we have about 3,000-ish um, right. paying customers. Hmm. Um, and so one support person basically for every 1,000 um, accounts. Um, and then the client services um, is actually separated to one to every 100 enterprise accounts. So that's kind of how that breaks down. Interesting. How many, I, I, I may have missed this, how many software developers do you have total? Um, I think we're at six, seven if you include myself. So seven for four hundred fifty thousand users. I don't actually write that much code anymore. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot of people to build a big business, you know. It's like I mean, uh, Nintendo as well. <laughs> I know they're a completely different type of company, but wait, you know, when they're running at their most profitable, it's like every one developer that they have accounts for huge amounts of revenue. Yeah, and it's like we're yeah. we're also on a different track, right? I mean, one. Once we took, you know, venture capital in uh, March of 2008, I mean, the game changed, right? We're at that time, March of 08, I don't know, I think we were doing roughly, I don't know, somewhere like $2 million a year, something like that. I don't know exactly what it was. Something like that. And there was three, four people here. So it was a very profitable, nice, small business. But since then, it's like really exponentiated. But we've also made strong investments and pushed the company so does it take 35 people to run you know, our business today? No, but it takes 35 people to invest and grow and scale this to how do you make this a 25, 50, $100 million business, right? I mean, that's the, the, the mindset that we're actually working in these days. How do you take what we took then, scale it times 10? Yeah, because if you wanted to just, let's just say you wanted to milk this thing, right? You didn't take any investment and you just wanted to lay back. I mean, you could probably run this with a third or less people, right? If you're just like, we're just going to maintain oh, absolutely. it. Whatever, probably eight to ten know, people. 70. Probably eight to ten. Eight to ten people. Yeah. Right. And you could just chill out. You could just chill out. But you're like, okay, no, we're gonna grow. So right. No, that's a really interesting thing, right? Because I remember uh, talking talking with you guys about this um, when you were you were considering taking VC capital, right? Because you're already pulling in a lot of cash, more than enough that you know to pay yourselves very nice salaries and and have have uh, hire some people and all those kinds of things, and. And at that point, right, you had a number of VCs starting to contact you, right? And when you, when you start making money like that and you have a growing business, people, the VCs contact you. Mm-hmm. And you were wrestling with the idea and you ultimately decided to do it. And did you, do you think that that turned out to be a good idea or not? Or how do you feel about it? Doesn't matter. We took the deal. It's our deal. We move forward. <laughs> we go. <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> and and, and I'm, actually, I'm not trying to be smart about it. It's it doesn't matter. Honestly, okay. don't think about it. It's we made a decision. Take the cash. We're on a different track. You go. Because you can look back right. and it doesn't matter. You can always wonder, could I have negotiated a better deal? Should we have taken the money? Should we have not? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Right. It's not gonna change anything, right? So yeah. 
Yeah, it, honestly, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck about it. It's doesn't matter. <laughs> right, because at the time, because at the time, I remember what you were talking about is that you wanted the cash to be able to really sort of um, spike your growth. Right? Okay, yeah. So why? Okay, so why did we take? take the, yes, yeah. that's why we took it. Was we felt we could grow faster with more resources. You know, it's kind of like looking back. Look at what we did with zero resources. Just think what we can do with resources and what we with what we built. And that was the intention. And that is the intention. And and did that turn out to be true? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so you're probably in terms of revenue, uh, you're probably way ahead of where you would be if you didn't you hadn't been able to put the investment in, right? I mean, absolutely. You spend- yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I'd also say we got we got hooked up with with uh, you know a, a really really sort of first class kind of VC firm. It's, it's Open View Venture Partners, and there's it's a really good outfit, and we've had you know really continue to have good experiences um, with them, even I don't know almost two years into it. Have they helped you make good business decisions? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they 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 they're pretty involved from a um, they're they're we would I would classify them as an active investor. Right. Um, someone that really cares in the direction we're going. They're, they're not just screaming at us every month and quarter about why, why we're not hitting the number. It's more about why are you making certain decisions? Um, are, is this what's going to take to get you X, Y, and Z? Is there anything we can do to help? Can we introduce you to some other portfolio companies that can assist? Can they do some research for us, et cetera? And um, I think they've pushed us really hard um, to bump up the priority in the UI. I think that I would attribute that not solely to them, but they did speak loudly to us on that. Mm. Um, and I think they have some really good experience in scaling a sales and marketing department. And that's what we're interested in right now. You know, speaking of the UI, I remember I remember years ago, early on, I, even by maybe a year or so into it, years into it, you had already gone through it. You had cried working with maybe a half dozen different designers, and it had <laughs> always been a frustration and a big fail, at which point you and Arnold were just like, you know what, screw it. We're just going to cut up a couple of things they did and we're just going to do it ourselves. Is that, am, I, am I wrong, frankly? <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. I, I, you know, it, designers are really hard to come by. I don't know what it is exactly about it, but I've been in the you know, internet space now for, I don't know, probably you know, 12 years or something like that. And um, just designers are, are really, really difficult to come by. Um, some of them are you know, more corporate site focused and others don't understand sort of web apps and things like that. Anyways, we got hooked up with, with a really good guy. Um, his name is uh, Dotin Sagi, and um, he uh, he's actually in LA, um, and uh, he, he's he's run a couple web properties and things like that in the past. He kind of some of his past include places like agency and, and things of that nature. Um, and uh, we kind of work with him uh, sort of on a consulting basis um, to, to help us uh, get some of the sort of UI on track. And I worked very closely with him. Um, this was. Uh, uh, probably you know April through kind of August time frame on a very high bandwidth basis um, until some of the stuff started you know the mockups kind of started hardening um, and then we started actually working on the integration and the code side of things um, so and and I, I think you know in general I'm very pleased with the the, the net net output um, and I think you know most of our customers are as well and you know, if you take a look at the the site now. Um, certainly, if you're familiar with the version one interface, I think you'll see a huge, huge difference. You know, yeah. I've heard things. Uh, uh, I've heard people say like, "Oh, you know, it looks kind of like Apple and things like that." So when I hear stuff like that, it's like, okay, you know, there's validation that okay, all this hard work, you know, I kind of paid off. Yeah, no, it totally looks uh, it's like it's been taken to another level before. Because I, I was sort of surprised. It was like three or four years into, it, and it still hadn't really changed the the look, or I hadn't 
had, had never really realized that fit and polished slick look and um and which was something that you guys seemed somewhat frustrated with but you're like at the end of the day like you know whatever i mean we'll get to it we're trying you know we know it's not awesome but but no it does it does it is really slick which that that sort of that look that i imagine some of your larger customers are going to expect they're going to spend a lot of money and say okay this is going to be this a software vendor that we're going to put some money into and build around build our solution around we want them to have this look and feel of a of a stable organization right yeah i i think right. the evolution of the web you know, of web apps i mean there's always been good design out there but i think over the past five or six years the bar continues to rise and just because you have good functionality it's not enough Web, web apps are getting closer to desktop apps so, and, and certainly in there you know the whole web web 2.0 for me be, feels like it's merging with the concept of things like um mac os mac os x and and you know the new windows look and feel and i think it's it's like for me i think good web design feels almost like a something solid like it has texture and depth to it and some right. of the old some of the old stuff was very two di- two dimensional just didn't totally. really feel like it had any depth. Yes, totally, totally, hundred percent agree. And some of the new cool stuff coming out with HTML5 and, and so forth is is really neat. But but I will say, <laughs> didn't keep us from making millions of dollars. That that's exactly that. That's also very interesting. <laughs> it didn't stop you from making millions of dollars. Like is uh, you've done you've done fantastically. And you know, I mean, if you look at um, uh, oh Craigslist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where's design there? You know, it's just it's just function, really. That's it. Yeah, and obviously there's a balance, and then the shtick that comes with it, right? Oh, these are two scrappy guys putting together a, a web app, and people really they're drawn to that, and they like that, and you root for them. But how far will that take you, right? Is a mid market, you know, hundred million dollar company going to rest their laurels and run their business on two scrappy guys? And their yeah. answer is no. I got to say that, you know, that's the other thing about everything is a business priority, right? So everything you do is with respect to a business priority is like, you know, making this UI better. Is this going to get us more dollars or are, you know, maybe adding these three features, you know, or, or having a billing engine that scales or, you know, whatever else is sort of in front of you. And you got to evaluate those things relative to your resources. I think this has been a great, a great episode because a lot of things that, Justin and I have speculated on or things that we think are true or things that we've experienced at a small scale you read about are, you know, it's just that, right? But talking to you guys, you've just been through it, right? You, you can tell us exactly what worked and what didn't. And what's really interesting is that it validates most of the things that, you know, you would intuit would be true, but yeah. that it's this real focus. You don't have to live in Silicon Valley. You don't necessarily have to be venture funded from the start. You don't need a lot of things that people think you might need a big blog present in a sense necessarily or whatever. You just focus on building a business, focus on solving customer problems and everything else outside of that is peripheral. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I keep, I, you know, I, you know, I, just the other day I found a semi-competitor that I was speaking to the founder CEO of the company, and he's all—he's a single founder actually, um, and I'll tell you the name is Sharefile, Sharefile.com, and this guy—I'd never met him before. Um, met on the phone, we spoke, and we connected, and we're pseudo competitors. I mean, not really, but sort of. But here, here they are. This guy is in North Carolina, and killing it, doing really well, 
with a staff of like 30 or 40 people. I don't know exactly. And he's out there by himself, the furthest thing from the Valley and no venture funding. And he's killing it. He's absolutely killing it. And it's like, man, I don't know. It totally inspired me. And I think there's stories like that of companies and individuals that we just don't know about. And they're just making tons of money. Not that's the most important thing, but they're being really successful in their applications and executing their business. And they weren't tech crunch. They didn't raise, you know, capital or like you said, whatever it is, fill in the blank of what you expect and you can be successful. In it. You know, and I would wonder if it's like a, um, by being in Silicon Valley and spending all your time there, you get kind of this group think that a lot of people get sucked into. My whole thing has to be this viral social uh, VC funded, whatever idea of the month, what everybody's doing. But if you're not there and you're not in that mix, you're not being influenced by all that stuff. You just, you might tend to focus more on just building your business, right? You're not getting distracted by a lot of things because you really have that option. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you just, you just have to, you know, you just have to. I, I think, I think a lot of those guys go back, go back to your soccer analogy there, Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of guys are you know, on the field and they're all running towards the ball. And there's some other stuff going on somewhere else um, that people are just sort of really executing against and and doing things that aren't necessarily the trendiest and, and the most, you know, social, whatever sort of buzzword that, that, that's going on lately. Um, And I I think the value is a lot of that sort of, you know, they're all, they're all kind of clustering around the ball and, and, and trying to, trying to, trying to get into the net where there's other interesting things that are happening outside of that that a lot of people don't focus on. So just just kind of keep that keep that in mind. I think some people right. want to be superstars. I mean, you know, you know, if we if I go to an event here in L.A. or whatever, nobody knows who I am. I'm just some you know Hispanic kid that's walking into a, a bar or whatever. But you know, you go to the Valley and somebody walks in and they founded X company with twenty five million dollars in Series A funding or whatever, and you think they're a rock star and and that's all they want. That's the definition of success and. I mean, hey, whatever. The unbridled optimism. I'm not going to knock that, but I guess Arnolf and I weren't interested in that. We're, you know, we're not the most charismatic people in the world. We're not superstar founders and entrepreneurs that people, you know, ooh, look at who they are. No, we're running a business here, and that's all we're interested in doing. <laughs> yeah, right. It sounds like you're having a good time doing it, right? Oh, we are. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, especially now that you have financial success out of it. I mean, you don't have to stress about. You know, uh, make it an income. Jason, they sound like they stress anyway. Even if they were really happy, they'd stress. Yeah, like, you know, they're never happy. I tell you, every time I ask them, they're like, ah, well, we should be doing. Well, one other thing I'll ask you real quick is your wives, right? I mean, they had to stick by you through that first, you know, year and a half or whatever that you weren't making much money at all. And you probably, I guess, from the time you started to the time you actually started paying yourself a salary was maybe like, what, two years? Probably two years, yeah. Yeah, so they really had to stick by you and, and really have faith in this. I mean, that must have been sort of stressful for them, huh? Well, what they both did was they said, um, we're both going to get pregnant. So that sort of... <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a very yeah. passive-aggressive... Yeah, fire on your ass there. They're like, you know, you better make this happen. Good, good There's motive, some reality good coming motivation. at you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, a lot of credit goes to them. I mean, they're the ones that... Man, uh, I don't know. It's it sometimes it feels like it was still five years ago where working twelve, fourteen, fifteen, eighteen hours a day, because that's very often what still happens. Yeah. Even right. today, five years later. Right, right. And now you have two kids, 
Isaac, right? And Arnold, you have one or you have two now? I have two now. Two. So, right. So you guys are both very busy, right? I mean, it's like, and it's another thing is that entrepreneurs, there's a sort of myth that entrepreneurs are young and unmarried and 23 and just out of college, whatever. But you guys started Central Desktop. And how old were you at that time? Um, I was, I'm 36 today. So I was 31. I was like 30, 31. So Arnold's, yeah, about the same. Yeah, right. I was 30, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you had the added pressure of you're married, you know, you, you own a house or whatever you have, you have some serious bills and you have kids coming, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, because I think of that sort of sense like, well, you know, I can't do a chart now because I have a wife and kids. It's like, well, you can, if you really want to, you just have to figure out a way to do it. And no, uh, we, we, we jumped off a cliff, man. We jumped off a cliff. We left very high paying, secure jobs at CNET.com with a lot of options that still had invested. We walked from a lot. Because we knew that whatever we were going to do was more interesting, more motivating, and in the end, hopefully, economically, more rewarding. Right. Right. I think that's just fantastic. And Jason, would you agree that that's a great note to end the the show on? I think so. I think we've gone. Yeah, it's a good, good long show. But I think we've asked all the most important questions anyway. So yeah, uh, Isaac Arnold, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and talk with us. I think uh, you know our listeners and certainly. Uh, Justin and I have, uh, will have learned a lot from this. Thanks yeah. very much. Thanks for having you guys, me. You guys serve as a perfect example, I think, of what to what to focus on and and uh, what to do if 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 you're trying to build a a business. Well, thank, thanks for letting the business guy on the phone too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, more than <laughs> thank you. That was, that was great. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>